everyone, and welcome to the July 13th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The call for broader protections for on-demand workers is getting louder as a result of the fallout from several high-profile class action suits against Uber ride-sharing services. And some companies are listening. Shipe, a San Francisco-based startup that picks up packages and ships items on demand, said that it's converting its couriers from independent contractors to full-fledged employees. The move, announced in a blog post by its CEO, makes Shipe one of the few on-demand companies to boast a workforce made up entirely of employees. Its van drivers and warehouse workers have been classified as W-2 employees all along, but its couriers, workers who actually interact with the customers picking up their items meant for shipping, were previously classified as independent contractors. This shift would convert all couriers into employees. Shipe's workforce of van drivers, warehouse workers, and couriers will consist of a mix of full-time and part-time employees. Newly classified W-2 couriers will get workers' compensation and vehicle reimbursement as well as unemployment, Social Security, and Medicare. Additional benefits such as health care will be available to full-time workers. Scheib's move comes at a time when the debate around how to properly classify workers for on-demand companies is heating up. As startups like Uber and Instacart go mainstream, so has awareness and criticism of the so-called 1099 economy these on-demand companies foster. These startups typically employ freelance contractors, a status they pitch as desirable because the work is relatively undemanding and flexible. Now Instacart recently began offering its shoppers an option to convert from contractor to part-time. Yet Uber is fighting a class action lawsuit accusing the company of misclassifying its drivers as independent contractors. Scheib, for its part, is growing fast. After launching in San Francisco last year, it now has operations in New York City, Miami, and Los Angeles, and plans to expand to Chicago soon. The number of packages shipped by Shipe has grown nearly 500% since closing its first round of funding, and its customer base is growing by more than 20% month over month. And now our fraud report. A federal indictment has been unsealed, charging three Southern California defendants with health care fraud. 38-year-old chiropractor Bahar Garib Danesh of Woodland Hills was arrested in Los Angeles, and 41-year-old chiropractor Na Young Yo of Bakersfield was arrested, along with a 72-year-old clinical psychologist John Terrence of Marina del Rey. According to the July indictment, Garib Danish was a chiropractor and the manager of Pain Relief Health Centers, headquartered in Los Angeles, with clinics in Bakersfield, Visalia, and Fresno. 
CEO, was also a chiropractor and was the treating physician for the company's Kern County workers' comp claims. Terrence was a clinical psychologist who saw patients from the Bakersfield Clinic. According to the indictment, the clinic recruited patients who were workers claiming to have an injury. Allegedly, Garib instructed her staff to add as many injured body parts for treatment as possible in order to generate higher billings. The treatment plan generally included shockwave therapy, electrostimulation therapy, myofascial release and massage, physical therapy, chiropractic manipulation, compound creams, and psychological evaluation. Nearly every patient was scheduled for the same treatments, and the maximum amount of treatments allowed by law was generally billed to the insurance company. If the claim of injury was denied by the carrier, a lien would be filled out and the claim would either be litigated before the California WCAB or settled by negotiations. Lien settlements for less than the full amount of the claim were acceptable because of the large amount of medical fees generated. The indictment further alleges that Garib directed EO to refer all patients who came into the clinic to Terrence for a psychological evaluation regardless of the injury the patient reported. Terrence submitted bills and reports for each patient that were virtually identical. He also allegedly fraudulently billed for patients at a rate higher than legally allowed. According to the indictment, Psychologist Terrence provided each patient with approximately 20.8 hours of psychological evaluations in a single day. On one day, Terrence billed a total of 291.2 hours for treating 14 patients. That's in one single day. In one period of two weeks, Psychologist Terrence billed over a thousand hours treating patients and writing reports. Over a period of seven years, Psychologist Terrence submitted claims for psychological services in workers' compensation cases totaling in excess of $5.6 million. If convicted, each defendant faces a maximum statutory penalty of 20 years in prison and a quarter of a million dollar fine on each count. And speaking of medical fraud, when you think it cannot get worse, actually it does. A Michigan doctor who misdiagnosed patients with cancer and then bombarded them with unnecessary treatments had to face his victims who lost their health, savings, and trust in an emotional sentencing hearing. Dr. Farid Fatah, has been sentenced to 45 years in prison for using patients as cash cows, telling some of them they were deathly ill with diseases they did not actually have. One of his victims, disabled auto worker Robert Sobire, was diagnosed by him in 2010 with a rare blood cancer. He was subjected to monthly infusions of chemotherapy and three weeks of radiation, expensive treatments that he said made his teeth fall out and his body twitch uncontrollably. After Fatah was arrested in 2013 and charged in what prosecutors said was the most egregious case of healthcare fraud in U.S. history, 
Sobire went to a different oncologist and learned he never even had cancer. Fatah pleaded guilty to fraud in September, admitting he raked in millions of dollars from insurance companies for needless treatments at seven clinics in eastern Michigan. His misdeeds were laid bare last month in a sentencing memo from prosecutors who said that he a total of 553 people got unnecessary treatment, amounting to 9,000 injections or infusions that cost insurance companies and patients millions of dollars. Fatah told healthy patients they were sick, while he told uh, the terminally ill they had hope in an effort to convince them to keep buying treatments that would not extend their lives. Prosecutors wrote in a sentencing memo that some of these terminally ill patients never knew they were dying because of Fatah's lies. Prosecutors compared Fatah to Ponzi schemer Bernard Madoff, who was sentenced to 150 years even though he was in his 70s at the time. Prosecutors said that in many ways, this doctor is worse than Madoff and that he wreaked damage on not only his victims' bank accounts, but their bodies. And you don't have to look very far to get upset about the current state of medical and scientific research fraud. Drug maker Pfizer may have hit evidence that Zoloft used by pregnant women caused heart defects in babies. GlaxoSmithKline paid $3 billion recently in fines for generating a fake journal article saying the drug Paxil was safe for kids and paying doctors lavish speaker fees and using sham advisory boards to promote Wellbutrin for off-label use. And failing to report that Avandia, a diabetes drug, could potentially cause heart problems. Another drug maker, Merck, for its part, is currently being accused of lying about the efficacy of its mumps vaccine in order to maintain its market monopoly on the drug. And you cannot necessarily just go straight to the source of research and trust an article in a peer-reviewed journal either. So who can you trust? Well, the truth is out there, and here's where you start. The public interest website, Retraction Watch, exposes the many weird things that scientists study. Things such as outer space dentistry, check. Rabbit hepatitis, check. The nutritional value of mushrooms, yep. And at a less glamorous level, Retraction Watch keeps track of published scientific literature retractions. It is generally believed that retractions help maintain the purity of science, help with the integrity of individual scientific journals, and help keep scientists from bending the rules. Yet, when researchers track the rate, the fate of retracted invalid articles, they found that after retraction, completely retracted articles were still cited elsewhere, a total of 733 times. Research misconduct became a public issue in the United States in 1981 when then-Representative Albert Gore Jr. 
chairman of the Investigations and Oversight Committee of the House Science and Technology Committee, held the first hearing on the emerging problem. The hearing was prompted by research misconduct cases at four major research centers in 1980. Congress took action by 1985 by passing the Health Research Extension Act. This act, in part, required the Secretary of Health and Human Services to issue a regulation requiring applicant or awardee institutions to establish an administrative process to review reports of scientific fraud and report their findings to the Secretary of any investigation of alleged scientific fraud which appeared substantial. And in regulatory news, medical marijuana poses challenges for the workers' compensation industry, but some experts and recent research say it could be an alternative to long-term opioid use. There's a growing consensus among workers' comp payers and doctors that any treatment that could reduce opioid dependency is something to keep an eye on. And now the Minnesota Department of Labor and Industry adopted a rule that said medical marijuana is not an illegal substance for injured workers under that state's law. It remains illegal, however, under federal law. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has not approved marijuana for any medical condition, so it's difficult to compare its effects with other drugs used in workers' comp, such as opioids. However, some experts say the risk of death and other severe addiction issues with opiates make looking at medical marijuana more palatable. But in a report published in a June issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association, the article says scientific evidence suggests now that marijuana may be an effective treatment for chronic pain, neuropathic nerve pain, and muscle spasms due to multiple sclerosis or paraplegia. In New Mexico, the State Court of Appeals has ruled three times since last year that medical marijuana is reasonable and necessary for injured workers and that it should be covered under workers' comp. In each New Mexico case, physicians supported the use of medical marijuana when opioids and other medications failed to relieve injured workers' chronic pain. In the most recent case, Sandra Lewis v. American General Media, Lewis's healthcare provider formed the opinion that the benefits of medical marijuana outweighed the risks of hyperdosis of narcotic medications. Although medical marijuana is now considered a legal substance in Minnesota for workers' comp, it will not be reasonable and necessary in all circumstances. The DIR reminds employers of the labor law requirement to notify the workers in writing about their rights under the Healthy Workplace Healthy Family Act of 2014. This is California's new paid sick leave law that took effect on July 1. All employers were required to post a notice about the new law in a conspicuous place at the worksite beginning last January. Employers must provide most employees with individual notices 
detailing their rights to paid sick leave even in situations where the employer's policy exceeds the state provisions. Individual notification is not required if the employee is directly employed by the state, city, county, or special district, or exempt from payment of overtime or the Industrial Welfare Commission wages, or covered by a valid collective bargaining agreement. Employers can print and complete a template available on the Labor Commissioner's website in English, Spanish, or Vietnamese, and provide it as an individual notification to each of their employees. Employers can also provide this same information in a notice of their own creation. Employers and workers can refer to the DIR's web page for more information on the new law, including a recorded training webinar and presentation slides, as well as a frequently asked question list. The WCIRB released a report examining data from approximately 1 million claims consisting of $4.4 billion in medical payments. Researchers found that California has the most prolonged workers' compensation treatment pattern in the country. And as claims mature, patterns of treatment evolve as prescriptions for narcotics and psychoactive drugs treatment of chronic medical problems of aging that are unrelated to the acute injury, and complications all become more prevalent. The total share of prescription narcotics, especially OxyContin, grew as claims developed over time. Additionally, shares of prescribed psychoactive drugs, such as sedative hypnotics, stimulants, and antidepressants, also increased with the age of the claim. Complications from medical care, a medical condition not likely associated with the initial injury, gradually also increased with the age of the claim. And in California, medical treatment continues and claims remain open for a longer period than in other states. California is unique when compared to other states in that it allows a greater proportion of prolonged treatment and enables acute conditions to become chronic medical problems. The complete report is available in the Research and Analysis section of the WCIRB website. The DWC has posted the 2014 Ethics Advisory Committee Annual Report on its website. The Ethics Committee is independent of the Division of Workers' Compensation and is charged with reviewing and monitoring complaints of misconduct filed against workers' compensation administrative law judges. The committee is required to make a public report each year summarizing activities in the previous calendar year. As civil servants, the workers' compensation judges are not subject to review by the California Commission on Judicial Performance, the agency which is responsible for investigating Supreme, Superior, and Appellate Court judges. This committee's authority and duties are set forth in the California Code of Regulations. Any person may file a complaint with the committee. Complaints must be presented in writing, and the committee will accept anonymous complaints. According to this report, the committee considered a total of 39 of 45 new complaints it received in the calendar years of 2014, in addition to three complaints left over from 2013. 
The complaint set forth a wide variety of grievances. A substantial portion of the complaints alleged legal error not involving judicial misconduct or expressed dissatisfaction with the judge's decision. An illustrative case is item number 11 in the report, which pertains to a defense attorney's complaint about a work comp judge who he alleged uh, used undue harassment on the parties and exceeded the scope of his authority. In this case, the judge refused to approve a compromise and release with a represented applicant. The harassment allegedly occurred when the judge wrote a total of five letters to the parties regarding the status of the case. The case was not on calendar, however, and the judge continued to write these letters. The attorney complained that on the judge's own motion, the judge set a status conference after the parties did not respond to the judge's letters. Following its review of the investigation, the committee recommended further action, which means they found some merit to the complaint. However, the report does not specify what this action was. A new CWCI analysis of 2015 independent medical review outcomes shows there was no significant reduction in IMR volume in the first quarter of this year. The analysis compares data from nearly 34,000 IMR determination letters issued in the first three months of this year. State legislators who enacted IMR expected the volume of requests would decline following an initial learning curve, but the new data indicates that after more than two years, IMR volume has yet to subside. A review of the IMR decisions showed that the IMR physicians upheld the UR doctor's modification or denial of the service 89% of the time, nearly matching the 91% uphold rate from 2014. The mix of services submitted for IMR also showed little change. Prescription drugs again topped the list, accounting for 48% of the first quarter IMR decisions. The first quarter IMR results also show that a relatively small number of physicians continue to account for the majority of the disputed medical services. The top 10% of physicians named in IMR decision letters accounted for 70% of the IMR requests, down from 83% last year while the top 1% of physicians, which is 52 providers, accounted for 28% of the disputed service requests in the first quarter down from 44% last year. In addition, the study documents continued geographic variation with 38% of the first quarter IMR decision letters addressed to Los Angeles County recipients. In all other California regions, the percentage of IMR decisions was, e was either in line with or disproportionately low relative to the percentage of claims from Los Angeles. CWCI has published more details in its Spotlight Report, which members and subscribers can access in the research section of the Institute's website. 
And in medical news, a new report from the CDC says heroin overdose deaths in the United States nearly quadrupled in the last decade, fueled by lower costs as well as increased abuse of prescription opiate painkillers. The report found that heroin use increased by 63%. In 2013, more than a half million people reported that they had used heroin in the last year. This is a 150% increase from 2007. As many as 8,200 people died from heroin overdoses in 2013 alone. People in nearly every demographic group are using the drug more. For example, heroin use has doubled among women. And the director of the CDC said that prescription medicines such as Vicodin, Oxycontin, and Percocet increase individuals' susceptibility to heroin addiction. He also said that there is more accessible, less expensive heroin all over the country. The report found that nearly all people, that is 96% of them, who use heroin also use multiple other substances and that the strongest risk factor for heroin abuse is prescription opiate abuse. According to the report, individuals who abuse prescription opiates have a 40 times greater risk of abusing heroin. The increased use has fueled sharp increases in overdose deaths. Reversing the trend will require an all-society response to improve opioid prescribing practices and expand access to effective treatment. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy in your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.